0: Good morning. Good morning. Oh, you can do better. Good morning. Good morning. There it is. Welcome to Northminster Church this morning. I'm so glad to see all of your faces as we gather for worship today. I want to say a special word of welcome to those of you who are visiting with us. We're particularly glad that you are here. We hope you feel fully comfortable here at Northminster. Uh, We actually celebrate communion weekly. So if you are new with us, there are instructions on the insert to your order of worship about how communion goes. You do not have to participate, but if you'd like to, we'd love to have you join us. Uh, Or if you just want to follow the folks around you, they will lead you the right way. So just get in line and they'll, they'll tell you where you need to go. If you would also pass the worship registry down your row so we have a record who's with us today we promise we will not show up at your house we just like to know who's with us and what your name is so that we can greet you properly next time you're here and if you could make that legible that would be even better Uh, we have a fellowship time after worship so if you would like to stick around have some juice have a snack please do so Uh, we just meet right out in the narthex that's for everybody Um, I've been asking folks to put name tags on. That hasn't been working real well, but I'm going to try again. Please put a name tag on. Uh, That way we can just know each other's names and can greet each other properly. Also, a couple of announcements for you as far as our calendar. Uh, This is mostly for parents and kids, but anyone is welcome. Tonight is the first of our summer movie series. That'll be tonight here in the sanctuary at 5 o'clock. We'll be watching a movie, sweet little movie called Vivo. Um, It involves Cuba, so it felt really appropriate for our church. The music is by Lin-Manuel Miranda. It's a lot of fun. So parents, kids, be here at five, bring a blanket, sleeping bag, whatever. We're gonna camp out on the floor. If you want to feed your kids something other than popcorn, uh, bring that with you and the church will provide drinks. So tonight, five o'clock here in Sanctuary. Also, next Saturday, we're going to be having a church workday to get prepared for Dr. Gaddy's memorial service. The church needs some sprucing. So if you could be here next Saturday morning, that would be wonderful. And I've been asked to remind you, bring cleaning supplies. If you got a vacuum, bring a vacuum. Is it 9 a.m. next Saturday? 9.30? 9.30. 9.30. Uh, I apologize. I didn't know off the top of my head. But whatever cleaning supplies you have, if you have stuff to work outside, bring that with you. We don't have a lot of that here at the church. So uh, work gloves, that sort of stuff. So if you're coming, that would just make the process easier. We are also planning to feed you. So if you are here, sign up on the list outside of my office, and we will make sure and fill your bellies for all the hard work you're going to do. All right. I think that is everything. Nothing else? So, I think it's a pretty regular sort of day. So, let's take a deep breath together. And we take this deep breath, for those of you who are new with us, um, to settle our minds and our hearts. We don't, as a society, usually stop very well. We aren't very good at slowing down. So, we take this breath to slow ourselves down. This sort of deep breathing is really good for anxiety. As a person with anxiety, I do this a lot. So if you were someone like me who has that issue, take some deep breaths. Church can sometimes be a hard place to be. If you don't live with anxiety, it's still good to do. And let that breath calm your mind, quiet your heart. As you breathe in, let it go all the way down to your toes. Let it fill your entire body. And as you breathe out, breathe out your to-do list. Breathe out travel plans. Breathe out anything that would keep you from being able to focus on this time that we have together, for it is sacred and special. And then if you would, join me in our call to worship that is printed in your order of worship. We are a gathering of diverse people, woven rainbow threads drawn together in a single prayer shawl, laying upon the shoulders of those who have been rejected or harmed, broken by the world and the church. We do not have to see the same languages. We can We can love differently, yet recognize that love is the same, no matter the gender or the person who shares it. For God created us for love. We do not have to look the same, love the same, pray the same, or even believe the same. Blue uses red to shine, yellow reflects next to green. We come together committing to deeper connection to listen for more to listen more and seek compassion over conflict hope over hate God created us for love we belong Amen. Hello. How are my young friends today? Good. saw several of you yesterday, but it's good to see you again. So I've got a question, and I want you to answer me honestly, okay? Do any of your parents ever make you come to church? (laughs) My parents used to make me go to church sometimes. It was worse when I was a teenager because I wanted to sleep late. Do your parents ever tell you what to do yeah Yeah. that's kinda the parents job Uh, do your parents ever tell you what you're not allowed to do Yes. Yes. that's really good cuz they're keeping you safe that's also the parents job so think about that now what if we're here in church and somebody walked in and said None of you are allowed to be here. How would that feel? Yeah. Would you say, you're not my mom. You can't tell me what to do. What if that person came in and said, you can't believe that. What you guys are believing is wrong. How would that feel? Yeah. Would you get mad? Yeah. Would you say, you're not my mom. You can't say that to me? Yeah. What if somebody came in and said... (laughs) I know what you're supposed to believe. You would agree with them? Mm, we gotta ask some more better questions. What about if they said, I'm gonna teach you the right things to believe? You just have to listen to me. Hmm. No. Would you maybe have some questions? Yeah. Would you maybe want to know a little bit more? So, what I'm trying to get you to think about is something I'm gonna talk about in the sermon. And the really fancy word for it is, the two words, is religious liberty. Can you say that? Religious liberty. Try it again. Religious liberty. And this is a phrase that a lot of grown-ups use. And what it really boils down to, the really, really simple version, is kind of what I just explained, is that no one should be able to walk into someone else's church Or into their home or even up to somebody on the street and say I know what you should believe you need to listen to me I know how you should do church you need to listen to me our country has a law that we have religious liberty we all get to choose for ourselves how we worship where we go to church what we talk about in our church, what sorts of music we get to have in our church. And that's really, really important. Now, it's a little bit different when we're kids because, you know, we have parents and they tell us what to do, right? But it's still really, really important for you all to know that you have a right to be in our church and you have a right to learn about God and you have a right to believe what you choose to believe about Jesus and church and everything else. So I don't ever want you to think that someone else has the right to come up to you and say, what you believe is wrong, because they don't. And we live in a country where those rights are protected. So that's really what the sermon's about today. But I wanted to make sure I explained it to you all, so that you know when you leave here, you have a right to believe what you believe, and to be who you are, and to come to this church even if your parents make you, okay? All right, turn around, face the congregation, sit up nice and straight and tall, hands to yourselves, please. Sit down on your bottom, thank you. I will say the first line of our prayer, you say it back to me nice and loud, and adults, you're welcome to join in. I see the face of God in you.
1: I see the face of God in you.
0: The love of Christ comes shining through. The love of Christ comes shining through it. And I am blessed to be with you. And I am blessed to be with you. O oh, holy child of God. Oh holy child of God. Amen. You can go back to your seats now. Thank you.
2: According to Matthew. Then the Pharisees went and plotted to entrap Jesus in what he said. So they sent their disciples to him, along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you're sincere and teach the way of God in accordance with truth, and show deference to no one, for you do not regard people with partiality. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, "'Why are you putting me to the test, you hypocrites? "'Show me the coin used for the tax.' "'And they brought him a denarius. "'Then he said to him, "'Whose head is on this and whose title?' "'They answered, Caesar's. "'Then he said to them, "'Give therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's "'and to God the things that are God's.' "'When they heard this, they were amazed.' and they left him and went away. The Gospel of our Lord. Thanks be to God.
0: Let's pray together. Expansive God, much is being said in our country about religious liberty, but it doesn't seem to be the kind of liberty that includes those of us in this room. It doesn't seem to be the kind of liberty that's available to people of color. And it certainly isn't the kind of liberty that's needed by those who have no interest in church or religion. So this morning we pray for actual religious liberty that's open and expansive to all people. We reject any singular group that would try to define what religious liberty is for all people. And most importantly, we ask forgiveness for anything we might have done to keep others from worship if, when, where, and how they choose. Lord, the hardest part is we're pretty sure we're right. Our approach to faith and church is loving and joyful and challenging in the right ways. We are doing the hard work. If folks would just join what we're doing here, they'd see what a loving, inclusive church looks like. But, oh Lord, our rightness does not give us carte blanche. Our inclusion does not make us faultless. Our love does not mean that there aren't some doors that will remain closed. Help us to be mindful of these truths. Help us to be humble enough to admit that you are God and we aren't. Help us to accept that you love those who struggle to even like church. And allow us to be a voice for all forms of worship that seek to genuinely show you praise. Allow us to stand up for those people who may not stand up for us, not out of spite or to virtue signal, but because such action is Christ-like. May we represent your expansive nature and inclusive love in all that we do, all that we say, and all that we are. Amen.
3: Beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, and on its horns were ten diadems, and on its heads were blasphemous names. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard, its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And the dragon gave it his power and his throne and great authority. And one of its heads seemed to have received a death blow, but its fatal wound had been healed. In amazement, the whole earth followed the beast. They worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, who is like the beast and who can fight against it? The beast was given a mouth speaking arrogant and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to speak blasphemies against God, blaspheming God's name and dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also it was allowed to wage over the saints and to conquer them. It was given authority over every tribe and people and language and nation, and all the inhabitants of the earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of the life of the lamb that was slaughtered. Let anyone who has an ear listen. If you are taken to be taken captive into captivity, you go. If you kill with the sword, with the sword, you must be killed. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. A complex reading for us to work on understanding. Thanks. Thanks be to God.
0: it on there we go let's pray together oh god may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight for you are our strength and our redeemer amen so this morning is the last of our four-week series on being Baptist and on this final Sunday we are going to explore those two things you're never supposed to talk about in polite company, religion and politics. Uh, The fourth of Walter B. Sheridan's four fragile freedoms, uh, he defines religious freedom this way. This is the historic Baptist affirmation of freedom of religion. You're probably familiar with that one, but he keeps going. Freedom of religion, freedom for religion, and freedom from religion insisting that Caesar is not Christ, and Christ is not Caesar. Now, often this topic is broadly discussed in terms of religious liberty, like I said to the kids, and the separation of church and state. And just as often, our barometer for deciding what is a violation of religious liberty depends on our politics. But what does the Bible say about religious liberty? And what role have Baptists played in making religious liberty part of the fabric of American life? Now, to begin, I want to to be really clear that it is a relatively modern and bold conviction to affirm that people should be able to believe without coercion, to practice their faith without constraint, and to spread their faith without hindrance. Biblically, there is no one approach to religious freedom. This morning's uh, reading from Revelation, and I know it was strange, but it's always good to hear a little bit of Revelation every once in a while. (laughs) The reason that I I had uh, Camille read that was that it speaks to the author, John of Patmos. It speaks to his fear of persecution and his advocacy to resist the state to the point of martyrdom. We didn't hear Romans 13 this morning, but if you are familiar with Romans 13, in that passage, Paul tells his audience that all people should be subject to the governing authorities. This advice was written to a community that was, wasn't being threatened by the state. And Paul, therefore, accents legitimacy of the state. Then, of course, there are Jesus' famous words from Matthew about giving to Caesar versus giving to God. This approach legitimizes but limits the state, and was the approach most often used by our Baptist ancestors because of their understanding of the nature of God, who dared to create us as free beings. Now, throughout the Old Testament, God is set against persons and institutions that restrict people's freedom. And the entire point of Jesus' ministry was to free people from all that would hold them back from fulfilling their potential for God. This means that there is more than a constitutional right or a governmental gift to freedom. This freedom that we have comes from God and it is the foundation our Baptist ancestors built on. Added to this foundation is the belief that humans are God's greatest creation and made in God's image. So to deny someone's freedom of conscience is to debase God's creation. I'm going to say that again. It's important. Humans are God's greatest creation and made in God's image. So to deny someone's freedom of conscience is to debase God's creation. So how did our Baptist ancestors... And by the way, for those of you visiting, this is actually a Baptist church. It's not in our name, but it's a Baptist church. How did our Baptist ancestors define religious freedom. There are three dimensions to this. One, freedom of religion is a commitment to liberty, not just tolerance. This is the difference between a concession versus a right, expediency versus a principle. The second piece of this, of this definition of religious freedom, is that it is religious freedom for all even those who want nothing to do with religion. And that's really important to remember. The third piece of the definition is that religious freedom means that there must, there must be a separation of church and state. Rather than the church being above the state, think of the medieval era in history, or the church under the state, which would have been 20th century uh, century communist countries, or the church with the state, which is the Anglican church in England, even to this day, rather than those sorts of models, having a separation between church and state can also be understood as a free church in a free state, or church and state side by side. Baptists have been invested in this sort of religious freedom since our earliest days when a man named Thomas Helwes, I hope you remember him from the first sermon in this series, he moved his brand-new Baptist flock from Amsterdam back to England, where they were from. And then once they settled in London, uh, Helwes took up the cause of writing about religious freedom. And he wrote uh, this, his book was called, A Short Declaration, of the mystery of iniquity. He wrote that in 1612. Uh, Not a short title, even though short's in the title. Most historians agree this was the first plea for complete religious freedom written in the English language. And then, apparently, being a man who really liked taking risks, uh, Thomas sent a copy of this book to the king, King James I, And he included a handwritten note reminding the king of this. The king is a mortal man and not God. And therefore, has no power over the immortal souls of his subjects. Probably won't surprise you to hear that that note, along with what was considered the heretical content of the book, uh, got Thomas thrown into prison. And he died there in jail in 1616. In this country... Uh, men like Roger Williams, Obadiah Holmes, Isaac Bacchus, and John Leland were early fighters for religious liberty, and they often paid a very high price. Isaac Bacchus was one of the most influential Baptist spokesmen for religious liberty during the colonial time and then as America was early into becoming a country. And along with a houseful of other men, he founded something called a grievance committee, founded that in 1772, and the point of it was to aid Baptists in their struggle for religious freedom. That was likely the very first organized religious lobby in our country. John Leland was a Baptist pastor. He worked with future president James Madison to end religious persecution in Virginia. And then later, when the Constitution was sent to the states to be ratified, if you remember your American history, the Constitution had to be sent out to the states, had to be ratified by so many states before it could become law. Is this ringing a bell? Way back in like eighth grade social studies, right? As that was happening, Leland, uh, John Leland led a group of Virginians who opposed the Constitution because it did not include a Bill of Rights and thus did not protect religious freedom. Now, we don't know all of the details of exactly how this happened, but it's likely that after much campaigning against the Constitution, Leland and Madison, who was at that point running for election, they met again and they worked out a deal, kind of like that Hamilton song, The Room Where It Happened. Some of y'all know what I mean? That sort of situation. Madison promised to support an amendment for religious liberty after the Constitution was ratified. And based on this promise, John Leland, the Baptist pastor, agreed to support the unamended Constitution. Virginia ratified the Constitution in 1789, and not long after, Madison introduced to the Congress the Bill of Rights. And hopefully you know, the first of the Bill of Rights guarantees religious liberty. So hopefully you can see that Baptists have been active and instrumental in the fight for religious freedom since the earliest days of our country. But where do Baptists stand on religious freedom now? Well, as with all things Baptist, this depends very much on what sort of Baptist you are. George W. Truett, a longtime pastor of First Baptist Dallas and the namesake for Baylor University's uh, seminary, was a passionate defender of religious liberty for all people. Saying in a sermon on the steps of the U.S. Capitol in 1920 that Jesus' word about rendering unto Caesar what is Caesar's and unto God what is God's was one of the most revolutionary and history-making utterances that even fell from those lips divine. That utterance, once and for all, marked the divorce of church and state. Then several decades later, in 1984, Truett's successor at FBC Dallas, which was then the largest church in the entire Southern Baptist Convention, so it was really, really big, this, uh, the successor was a gentleman named W.A. Criswell. That name might sound familiar to some of you. He was asked about the separation of church and states during a TV interview, and his response took a very different turn. He said, in part, I believe this notion of the separation of church and state was the figment of some infidel's imagination. Now, I mentioned these two comments to you from two men filling the same role at the same church to highlight the change that took place within Baptist life in about 60 years. Truett and Criswell were both Southern Baptist pastors. Both were well-educated, well-respected, and had very long tenures at FBC Dallas. And yet, they took startlingly different views of the separation of church and state, which, as I outlined, is a fundamentally important part of the Baptist identity in this country. Now, quite a few things contribute to this rather whiplash-inducing change, including the much longer story of the fundamentalist takeover of the Southern Baptist Convention in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. So it would be easy to just dismiss all of this as something only our other Southern Baptist siblings, those Baptists we aren't, are dealing with. But if we're honest with ourselves, we face just as insidious a threat. It doesn't just affect us as a progressive Baptist church in the South, but more generally as Christians in America. And this is called civil religion or religious, religious nationalism or Christian nationalism is the phrasing you might have heard. And it's this movement we've all seen picking up steam in the past few years that fuses Christianity and American civic life. This way of thinking holds that to be a good American, you must be a Christian. It demands the government give Christianity special privileges. It fuses pietism and patriotism in all sorts of really scary ways and is typified by using the Bible as a prop or switching out Jesus' name for specifically American uh, concepts like the flag while quoting scripture. I won't name the name of the politician who did that, but he did it on a national stage. If nothing else, these blatant examples of Christian nationalism should should offend all people of faith, but particularly us as Baptists with our ancestors' dedication to religious freedom. Now, I could keep going. I don't know if you can tell, I'm getting a little fiery about Christian nationalism. (laughs) But I'm gonna put a pin in it for now. We're gonna talk about this more in the months to come. Uh, The executive director of the Baptist Joint Committee, which is an organization in Washington, D.C. that works for religious liberty, her name is Amanda Tyler. She will be here in November for the Strickland Lectures. I hope all of you can come for that. So we're gonna come back to this quite a bit in the fall. But for now, this morning, where does this leave us? After all, Fourth of July is just a week away. So what is the good news this morning? Well, my friends, the good news this morning is that the state is always subordinate to the lordship of Jesus Christ. The authority of Christ should never be confused with the authority of the state. And while it is possible to be a good American, whatever that means, and a good Christian, whatever that means, at the same time, you do not have to be a Christian to be an American or vice versa. Our Baptist ancestors knew that. They worked tirelessly to make it possible for everyone in this country to have freedom of religion, freedom for religion, and freedom from religion if they so chose. Now it's time for us to pick up their torch and continue the work, to work from our historic Baptist roots, to work the way Welton would have us work, to fight for all people, and to always remember that Christ is Lord of all. As we come to communion in this Pentecost season, we recognize the loving God whose divine lungs exhaled the Spirit into our world. God's breath, God's Spirit, the Ruach in Hebrew, continues to transform our world. Before the earth was formed, the Spirit of God swirled through the void and through shadows. As humans were created, the air of God filled the lungs of Adam and the soul of Eve, This divine air continues to fill us up when our bones are dry and our spirits are sluggish. So in this Pentecost season, we also invite the Spirit to come upon these simple elements. We ask God to pour out your Spirit to make the elements come alive for us. Make this meal awaken our sleepy hearts and our stagnant souls. May we begin to celebrate visions and animate the dreams that have only been alive in our minds as we share this meal let us remember our siblings in faith who come around tables just like this one all over the world they're doing it right now they've done it in centuries past and our children will surround tables just like this one in the future this is not my table this is not Northminster's table this is Christ's table we are the guests and Christ is the host And there is a seat here with your name on it. So kick off your walking shoes and make yourself comfortable. This is holy ground. All are wanted and all are welcome here with our doubts, our shortcomings, our failures, our griefs. No matter what you bring with you to this table, you are not just tolerated. You are overwhelmingly welcomed and overwhelmingly wanted. Thanks be to God for a love like that but deliver deliver us us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Amen. On the night before Jesus died, it was a solemn time around that table. Because of his relentless pursuit of love, he would be seized by those in power. But before he was taken, Jesus introduced this meal to his followers. For even though he knew the end was coming, he joined with those he loved. And as the night lengthened, he took a simple portion of bread and he broke it and gave thanks for it. And he gave it to the disciples saying, remember me. And then after supper, Jesus picked up a cup. He filled it with wine and he blessed it. And he shared it with them saying, that he would go to the ends of the earth out of love for those disciples. And then later, after the resurrection, the disciples were eating on a beach with the risen Christ, celebrating new hope, new life, new vitality. So in this Pentecost season, as we come to this table, let us celebrate the spirit of resurrection and the promise of a needed second wind blowing through our lives. Amen.
4: Jesus.
0: And sing before I preached because y'all would have said, All right, church is over, we're going home. <laughs> Aaron, thank you. That was beautiful. Now, hear this benediction. May God bless you with a distaste for superficial worship so that you will live deep within your soul. May God bless you with anger at prejudice so that you will work for justice. May God bless you with tears for those who sorrow so that you will offer comfort. And may God bless you with enough foolishness to believe that you can make a difference in the world. Go be salty. Amen.